This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Good evening. I'm Serena Field, and it's wonderful to welcome you to tonight's event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, sponsored by The List. Tracy Thorne is best known as one half of the duo Everything But The Girl. Between 1982 and 2000, they sold over nine million records and toured the world. But in spite of all her great success, both in the band and as a solo artist, as Tracy said in her best-selling memoir, Bedsit Disco Queen, she always felt mostly on the margins. In this book she's going to talk about tonight, Another Planet, she explores how her life has indeed been shaped by the fact that she was born and spent her teenage years in a commuter village on the outskirts of London, Brookman's Park in Hertfordshire. Physically going back there for the first time in three decades led Tracy to write about how boredom and restlessness led to creativity, how her parents' post-war dream of suburban safety meant something very different to her, and yet how it embedded itself in her creative DNA. So to begin tonight's event, Tracy is going to do a reading from her book. And so please welcome her now, Tracy Thorne. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to read um, a couple of passages just to start with, just to give an idea, because I know, you know, it's a bit weird when you start talking about a book that people don't even really know what it sounds like. Um, I make quite a lot of use in the book of my teenage diaries, which I started keeping um, when I was about 13. So I'm going to read a section from the beginning, which uh, gives you an idea of what those diaries were like. And then I'm going to read a short passage from later on, which talks a little bit about the relationship with my parents and what happened to it after my teens. Going right back to the start... I tried to picture myself on the day I first decided to keep a diary, 29th of December 1975, when I was 13 years old. I must have been given it as a Christmas present, and although it was for the year 1976, its first few pages invited entries for the end of the previous year. So I began as the old year ended, just before it turned to face the new. I would have settled down with a pen, riffled through the year's worth of blank, empty pages before breaking it open at the very start. And then, 29th December 1975, went to St Albans with Debbie, got a belt, could not get a jumper or skirt. That's it. That's all she wrote. No starting with a bang, no announcing herself to the world or to a future reader, no declaration of intent. Instead, I draw a circle and leave it empty, my eye caught by an absence. And it wasn't an aberration. I carried on in that style for years, making countless entries about not buying things, <laughs> not going to the disco, not going to school, a piano lesson being cancelled, the school coach not arriving. It's a life described by what's missing and what fails to happen. My second ever entry is just as banal. 
30th of December, went to Welling with Liz, didn't get anything except a bag of Kentucky chips. 1st of January, 1977, went to Welling with mum and dad to get some boots but couldn't get any. 8th of January, Liz and I went to Potter's Bar in the afternoon to try to get her ears pierced but she couldn't. 19th of January, 1979, Deb and I went to St Albans, tried to get some black trousers but couldn't find any nice ones. 17th of March, tried to go to the library but it was shut. Was it me or was it my surroundings? Was it just that I was the dullest child in existence, noticing nothing, experiencing nothing, thinking nothing? Or was it at least in part an embodiment of something in the air, something vague and undefined? Even when I write about it now, I realize that the time and place in which I grew up, 1970s suburbia, is easier to define by saying what it wasn't than what it was. Brookman's Park was a village, but not a village. Rural, but not rural. A stop on the line a space in between two landscapes that are both more highly rated, the city and the countryside, a contingent, liminal, border territory, in between land. So I write quite a lot in the book about what happens during my teenage years, and my relationship with my parents falls apart a bit, um, as it does, and doesn't entirely recover, but I'm just going to read a passage from towards the end. The distance that had grown up between me and my parents in my teens never quite closed up. And it was due in part to my increased education and change of lifestyle. Like so many similar parents, they'd wanted me to do well at school and then go to university to take those chances they'd never had. And then when I did, it turned me into someone they thought they couldn't understand. Later on, they'd be proud of my musical success but perhaps more because it was success and therefore respectable than because it was artistically interesting to them. <clears throat> they liked the music when it was more mainstream and they liked the gigs at the Albert Hall because they were tangible proof of achievement and status. And they enjoyed the sense of pride and reflected glory at the backstage party. And all of this was soothing and reassuring to them because it took away some of the fear that they had lost me to rock and roll. We never know our parents as we are growing up, only getting to understand them once we are ourselves standing in their old discarded shoes, and perhaps it can't be any other way. But if we don't know our parents, I do also wonder whether they ever know us. In later years, after my break to have children, when I went back to music, and recorded an album called Out of the Woods in 2007, I sent them a copy, expecting a phone call or something a day or two later, hoping for parental praise, as you always do, as you still do even when you're a grown-up and a success and a mother. It never came. They never mentioned it or said anything about the record. My sister Debbie told me later they'd found it hard to understand and I was never sure what exactly was hard to understand. The music or the reason for making a record? The need, perhaps that? 
Later still, when I wrote Beds at Disco Queen, my dad's only comment to Debbie was, I never knew Tracy was so into music. Which still makes me laugh till I cry, for all it says about how much we can remain a complete and utter mystery to those who should know us the best. And then again, in even later years, he would say to Debbie, in reference to something or other I had done, some inexplicable action, some bizarre life choice. And this, remember, when I was a middle-aged, middle-class woman, Married to the man I'd been with for over 30 years with three children, he would say, Oh, Tracy, she's from another planet. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. You mentioned there that you know once you left home, um, there was a disconnect with your parents that never quite healed over. I know that you're much closer to your children than was the case for you with your parents. Do you put that down to sort of a generational difference? Parenting is, is different now, or is it something to do with the particular personalities involved in your family? I mean, it is very generational. You know, I was brought up in that atmosphere, which I do think was exacerbated by this suburban environment as well, mm. where the great goal of life really was to pretend everything was fine. Um, my parents' whole lifestyle was very aspirational. For them, the move out of London and into this nice suburb was about trying to achieve a nice life. Um, and so th from that point on, the amount of effort that went into making sure that everything was nice and um, that nothing difficult or nasty was ever discussed meant that, you know, the relationship we had seemed to operate at sort of surface level all the time. So, you know, you didn't get close because you didn't talk about anything difficult or problematic. And that was fine when I was a child. Everything was quite cosy and conventional and nice. But when I became a teenager and became just more curious about the world and especially, you know, excited by music and art and culture. Um, I wanted to start talking about things and throwing ideas around, you know, and expressing myself and um, just this kind of portcullis came down, you know, that we just don't go there. And I think that at that point, that sort of gap started to open up, which is embodied in those lines like not knowing that I was into music, thinking I'm from another planet, you know, where... I was made to feel like I was sort of, you know, it had come from somewhere else. It was a sort of alien being for being interested in those things. Because it's interesting, at one point in the book, you mention that you realise you never mentioned your dad at all, really, in your, in your teenage diaries. Why do you think that was? Well, my dad was a bit of a background figure. He was a very quiet, shy man. Um, and I think I had a much closer relationship with my mum, um, to whom as a child I was very close. And then my teenage rebellion, a lot of it was very much against my mum. And I realised, looking back, that a lot of what I was rebelling against, really, was the life she seemed to represent, which was my you know, adult woman role model. Um, and it was, to me, a terrifying option. It was stultifying, you know, just having given up work... To, to have children, being a housewife, um, you know, being terrified to ever talk about anything difficult, whilst clearly, I think, herself suffering from anxiety issues and all sorts of things like that. So, um, 
even in my rebellion, a lot of my rebellion was much more about my mum than about my dad, who remained a bit shadowy to me. Because suburbia was was defined sort of culturally, wasn't it, as a quite a female space? And you mentioned in the book that some of the images of, of women in suburbia that, that you would watch on, on the television on the in the evening with your parents, you're talking about you know, George and Mildred and the good life mm. and these kind of figures that they represented a certain image of suburbia to you. And so did your mum fit with, with those, really? Well, look, you know, the women in those kind of um, cultural representations that I was seeing of suburbia are horrifying. Um, you know, Margot Ledbetter, <laughs> who, you know, lives next door to the goods, um, was what my mum seemed to me to be aspiring to be. Right. <laughs> I watched The Good Life with a s- sort of awful sense of dread that my parents were actually the Leadbatters and or what I wanted to be. You know, whereas the goods were clearly the goodies. <laughs> um, that was, you know, they were the kind of moral centre of the thing. The Leadbatters were there to be laughed at, and yet what they represented was the classic suburban ideal. You know, it was about having a nice house, impressing the neighbours, joining the golf club. Um, you know, aspirational stuff. Um, And look, as a teenager, I objected to that enormously. When I came to write the book and started actually, you know, researching suburbia more and thinking more deeply about my actual parents and who they were Mm -hmm. and where they'd come from and how they ended up there, I started to take a more sympathetic view. You know, they'd both grown up in working-class North London, had lived through the Blitz, had both been bombed. And in the late 1940s, when they got married, they had the opportunity to then move out of London, which, let's face it, large parts of it were bomb sites, especially where they'd grown up. Lots of the streets they'd lived in barely existed anymore. Um, They had the opportunity to move out, and in the early 50s, buy a little semi-detached house with a garden, and a you know garage and a, a front wall, um, and of course I can understand now why they wanted that and why it represented something safe and you know a step up the ladder, a degree of comfort, a place that you could bring up children. Um, I, I came to a much greater understanding of why they'd moved there, which then opened my eyes to the fact that the mocking of suburbia in itself has a certain viciousness to it and a certain refusal to understand why it is that people want a nice life for themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. I quote Kingsley Amis at one point. He says, you know, nice things are nicer than nasty things. Um, And it's true, human beings (laughs) being what we are, you know, will generally choose nice things over nasty things. You mentioned as well... You're saying there that you, you have greater sympathy now you know, with your parents than you had at the time when you were living with them in, in suburbia. You say that you could only write this book now that your parents are not around anymore. Is that to do with the not talking about anything difficult or feelings or anything that might be controversial? Yeah, I would have found, you know, I'm their child, so I've inherited some of that difficulty in talking about difficult things. I certainly would have found it very difficult to write this book knowing that they would read it. Um, It would have been painful for them, I think, to see articulated how much I hadn't been happy as a teenager. I think they would have found that very painful. As I say, they thought they were um, moving into a lifestyle that was going to be perfect for children and that we would all grow up happy in. And 
I think they had an inkling <laughs> that I wasn't happy as a teen, but perhaps just tried to write that off as teenage rebellion that I'd then grown out of. But actually, you know, I, I do in the book talk about, you know, that gulf that opened up between us. And it's very difficult to talk about that when mm. your parents are still alive. We did make our peace with each other and we, we ended up with a relationship that was as close as it could be. There was still a degree of misunderstanding there. Yeah. The fact that even in late life, my dad could still feel I was someone from another planet. Um, but we were basically kind and forgiving towards each other. And I think, you know, to write a very honest book is very difficult. It's the classic dilemma of any writer, really. If you want to write honestly about people close to you, that does pose a really awkward ethical question, you know. Not even just ethical, just personal. What's it going to do to your relationship with these people? Yeah. And it would have made it difficult. So I do think it's a classic um, book written by someone who wants to tell the truth about their parents but can perhaps only do so once they're not sort of standing over your shoulder. And you might think then if, if you were frustrated or unhappy where you were uh, as a teenager growing up and that's something that you didn't particularly want your parents to know you might think then that the, the diary would be packed with you know that you might pour your heart out into the diary but as we just heard when when you were sort of reading the excerpts there from the diary that's not the case at all so as a writer now looking back at this document you created um from the age of, of 13 what what do you think of the voice that, that you read there now? Is she withholding still quite a lot of what you, you know was going on at the time? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when I came to read the diaries um, and I started reading these entries about nothing happening, you know, the fact that I actually bothered to write down not being able to get a belt, um, <laughs> I thought this is a gift actually to a writer because it immediately gets you started on this really interesting question of um, openness and you know disclosure and withholding, how much as a writer do you choose to tell, how do you decide what to tell. When you're writing a non-fiction book, people assume, well, you just write down what happened, but of course you don't. You're constructing a narrative all the time. And even in something as private and personal as a diary, there was part of me that was constructing a narrative, a really weird one a lot of the time. Um, you know, so keen was I, obviously, not to go anywhere difficult that I would actually note down something not happening. What's that about? <laughs> the marking of something not happening yeah. um, seemed to me fascinating, you know, in this sort of obsession with absence, with nothingness. Mm. Um, so it was a really good starting point. I thought it really opened up then the whole notion of what memoirs are about, you know, what non-fiction books are about, how honest do you think the writer is being? Mm. You know, my teenage diary writing self was often quite dishonest um, in describing things that had happened. I'm, I'm sure that's not uncommon, but, you know, I would write a few entries about a boy I really liked, and then it would go wrong, and then there'd be all the entries about why I didn't like him, you know, why I was, oh, not interested in that anymore. And you just think, actually, I didn't have any sort of vocabulary in which to describe pain um, or disappointment or embarrassment or shame, any of those things. So you have to read between the lines of the diary. You know, it's all there. You can, as an adult reading it, um, you can imagine what this person is really feeling. But it's certainly not handed to you on a plate. You do actually have to do some imaginative work. 
And it's almost as though at times you were sort of evaluating your behavior as, as you go along, because at one point you write about, uh, you say something happened that you're upset about and you write, write sob, sob. Or if you do something that, it seems as though if you do something that you feel uh, might be viewed by someone else, possibly your parents, uh, with disapproval, you write tut, tut mm. as well. So there was a level of, of remove you know, assessing your, your behaviour and, and what you'd been doing. I mean, I think I was literally scared that my mum was reading my diary. Right. That's another explanation for some of the absences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I write quite early on that there was an instance when I wrote a very personal letter to a friend, quite melodramatically, um, saying, I think I'm going to kill myself, um, which honestly wasn't true at all, but I'd written it in a letter and left it unsealed on my bed. You know, interesting psychological question. Why are you leaving this unsealed on your bed? But my mum read it um, and confronted me with it. And from that point on, I always felt that my diaries were not necessarily private. Um, you know, I couldn't be sure whether or not she was going to read them. But then when I came to read them now as an adult, I felt that sometimes I was almost playing a game, you know, of... of tempting her to read things and then confront me with them. You know, there are some things I do write in the diary and then some things that are left out. Um, and one of my favourite bits that I came across was an actual blank page. Um, there was one day that I just left completely blank. Now, I remember why. I know what happened on that day and what I didn't have the words for or didn't want to describe. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I had um, you know, a few interesting conversations during the writing of the book about how to present that. I didn't want to present it too dramatically to imply that on the day of the blank page something absolutely shattering had happened. It just seemed to me the absolutely perfect example of this kind of editing function that was going on even at the stage of writing an apparently honest diary. And what do these diaries look like? I mean, how many have you got? Are they sort of exercise books? And the reason I'm no, asking... No, they're this size. They're li these little tiny lets. Pocket oh, tiny, diaries. right. Tiny. Right. Because um. they just seem to be, have been such important documents for you because yeah. out of them, you know, both books, uh, this, this book and Bedsit Disco Queen, draw from your, your diaries. And also your very first songs really grew, grew from your teenage diaries as well. So it's intriguing to think that all of that really <laughs> has come and, ha you know, how much these, these diaries have shaped your life really as it's continued. I mean, I think the most interesting thing is that I was actually more honest in my songs when I started to write them than I was in my diaries. Uh -huh. That really struck me when I read them, that there's a point towards, in the last couple of years of my diaries, the late 70s, 1979 onwards, when I was writing songs by then, and all the emotion was going into the songs, which were public. <laughs> You know, I was standing up and singing them in front of people and then recording them, and yet somehow felt actually more able to express or convey emotion in that format mm -hmm. than in a diary, where still there are absences and a, a sense of something being withheld. So I think that's very interesting. I, it, it felt to me as though another thing they revealed was that I needed a more artistic, expressive outlet, really, in order to get this stuff out. The diaries were useful up to a point, mm -hmm. um, and they're a great source of raw material for me now, but there's a point when they almost um, ran out of being useful to me, and I, 
I by that stage had begun to explore other ways of expressing all this stuff that was, you know, very pent up in me because at home there was no way of expressing it. And so music stepped in really and filled that gap and I think allowed me to step outside of this, you know, very mundane, very conservative, very conventional world and into something that seemed limitless and expressive and magical. Um, and that's what music offered me, really, was a, a route out of this really limited world. And what kind of... How would you describe yourself um, as a teenager? Because I really enjoyed reading the details about, you know, you would go down the shops on a Saturday to, to look for clothes. Not that you got any, but that you were looking for. <laughs> um, the TV that you watched, that you did a paper around, that you had a Saturday job. I'm sure, you know, that would bring back memories for, for a lot of people. What, how would you describe yourself as a teenager during those years? Well, one of the things that I thought was really striking is those things that you just described are all there. They're the sort of innocent pursuits, you know, the going to the shops, the walking the dog, um, having piano lessons, having a paper round. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, the flip side is, at the same time, I was also starting to go to discos from the age of about 13 in the local hotel where I was... Uh, getting off with much older boys, men, frankly. Um, there was a great entry I read, which, you know, being the age I am now, made me sit up very straight when I talk about, um, oh, I was dancing with this bloke again, he's a bit of a creep, keeps bothering me, turns out he's a policeman. <laughs> and I was like, wait, you're 13? Yeah. <laughs> and he's a policeman? Um so, you know, there was a really strange kind of flip side to this, the narrowness, which was that as young girls especially, we were both incredibly repressed in that we weren't taught anything and nothing was talked about, but we were incredibly vulnerable because they, we were out there in this world that as yet had no rules at all, certainly concerning um, the availability of youngish girls um, to be, you know, exploited in some ways. You know, we weren't unwilling, but we were too young, and we were, you'd say innocent, but honestly we were ignorant, and that mm. sort of innocence, ignorance, made us very vulnerable. So some of the diary entries, they veer wildly between, you know, reports of watching The Good Life and what's on at school, and then a night at the disco where I sort of sat there thinking, oh... God, really? And lots of underage drinking and lots of underage drinking and then getting in cars with people who've all been drinking and eight of you getting in a car to drive to the next village where there's a pub. Um, there's a Saturday night where we all go and have a look at um, the wreckage of a car crash <laughs> that's happened because yeah. that was Saturday night entertainment in the suburbs. And it was a group of friends that we'd all know. None of them were hurt particularly. But I casually end the diary entry by saying, I think, I can't remember how many, there was eight of them in that car or something. You're like, how? What? So there was a kind of recklessness, I think, in that time when, you know, as yet, certain things that we now take for granted, you know, health and safety issues, drink driving, um, you know, ID cards being needed to buy drinks in pubs. No one ever asked us how old we were. So we went to the, we didn't, drink at home we just went to the same pubs all the adults went to and got served 
Um, so it's a really strange mixture. I think, you know, that was something I tried to capture about the weirdness of the time, that in some ways it was very unliberated and very repressed in that we never talked about anything, um, but at the same time there were no actual rules that might have kept us safer. Mm-hmm. And as young girls especially, we didn't really have any power or agency. We just had a lot of rebellious urges that were kind of we were going out there into the world with but you know we weren't really in control of our destiny at that point and you're talking about the strangeness of the time but in the book also you muse on the strangeness of the place of yeah. brookman's park yes. and so you've talked there about the brookman's uh, park hotel disco mm-hmm. that's way that's where you went but you also mentioned that there were no arts venues for example there i mean how significant was that for you growing up as somebody who was obviously interested in in the arts well you know that's that's classic suburbia i think one of the sneery definitions of suburbia mm-hmm. is it's somewhere with you know no educational facilities and no culture um, and I mean, it's true there wasn't, because Brimmer's Park was quite small, so it didn't have um, a club or a theatre or a cinema. You had to go to the nearest town Mm -hmm. for that. Um, The the odd thing, I suppose, was being so near to London, and we were only 25 minutes away on the train, um, it had that sort of, you know, little satellite town feeling that you were just close enough to where it was all happening Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, it's like just being pressed up against the window. You could see that London was happening. And so especially when exciting musical things began to happen, you know, punk in the late 70s, um, and I started then going to gigs, um, London was near enough that that's where I sort of went to get my culture. And I think because of that, it made London seem, you know, a very magical place to me. I think I was a classic example of one of those suburbanites who ends up, massively romanticizing the city that they live near um, because it just seemed to me the ideal place obviously you'd want to get to London because everything was happening there and I just couldn't understand why both my parents who'd grown up there you know I'd hear all their stories about where they'd grown up and you know them doing all their courting in Kentish Town and the first time they ever met was in an underground station and I just thought it's so romantic it's so exciting why did you leave? Um, and of course, being in a band and showing off his classic teenage rebellion, do you feel you would have done it anyway, whatever the circumstances you grew up in, because it was always in you, you loved music, or was this a specific way to rebel when you started your own band, when you got your guitar? Well, I don't know, and this is where we get to, you know, it raises these really interesting questions about boredom yeah. and about lack of um, culture, you know, Again, there's something about the time and the place. We all look back to that era before um, culture, music, you know, films, art, fashion were so readily available, when we really did have to still do it ourselves. And so the late 70s, you know, punk movement and what came after it was very much about do-it-yourself. So um, we formed bands because not many bands came to play nearby us that we could go and see. So we formed our own bands. And literally, the first ever gigs I did were just in people's houses, just at parties, playing our songs to each other. And we made our own clothes, you know. it was. Yeah. And then when we started recording, we recorded things in our own bedrooms and went to a tape copying service and got 50 copies made and then made the sleeves ourselves. Yeah. So 
you know, there is something about that absence of available entertainment and culture that in some ways can be inspiring. Um, you really did figure it out yourself, didn't you? You just had an, an inclination that you just felt you needed to have a guitar and you did, you bought one, but you didn't know really that it needed an amp or a lead no. to play, so you played it sort of in silence in, in your did. room. I did, You know, we're back to ignorance again, <laughs> um, which sometimes can be a spur to creativity. I always think that there was something about not knowing the rules, especially as girls. You know, I remember as girls, we felt very left out of the kind of rules of, of being in a band. I joined my first band and I was the only girl. And the boys were the same age as me, but somehow they seemed to have already like got information about amps and technology and like they talk in language that I was like, have you had a meeting when I wasn't here? <laughs> you know, have you kind of decided? And they'd already decided what, you know, what records were cool. And I remember just, again, that feeling of nose pressed up against the window. But it just made me feel a bit defiant. It made me feel like, um, well, you know, I'm not going to let you just dictate what's, what's the way this happens. Um, and that actually maybe there's something about not knowing the rules that means you come up with something new. The danger of knowing the rules is you follow them. Yeah. Um, and that was and that's what music can get into it, how it can get into a rut. So by not knowing the rules, you know, it did make us um, break yeah. them. Yeah, or not being influenced by what's necessarily around you, because as well, when you, for example, when you went to university in Hull and you met Ben, you you felt that your your musical um, style evolved because not many bands came to play. In yeah, Hull, I, w so. I went from one isolated place to another. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Hull's a little bit one of those, um, just tucked away in its yeah. own little corner. And I do remember we would, you know, we'd get the music papers and look at someone going on tour. And, you know, they do Manchester, Sheffield, Leeds, Liverpool, you know, but Hull, not Hull. you know, not often. Um, so we would, you know, by that stage we would go to places like Manchester and Liverpool to see bands. But again, I think it meant we slightly evolved um, just to one side of being part of a scene. And again, I think there is something interesting to be said about the sort of outsideriness um, mm -hmm. that cultivates art. You know, being part of a scene can be great and it can be really exciting, but on the other hand, it can also create a kind of homogenous sound and style you know you get scenes in cities that grow up where you can say oh well all those bands sound like they come from there which you know can be great and exciting but then what we all want all the time is progress and new ideas and someone to not sound like anyone else so again there's something about just being on the outside of things that I think can be a spur and something I notice about your writing, particularly when you write about your music career and, and all this, the successes that you've, you've had, you're very matter-of-fact about it. So, for example, in the beginning with the Marine Girls, your early band, the fact that your music career was taking off in your late teens and you, you went to university anyway and kept it going, was that just your personality, to take, just to take it in your stride, or was it the suburban thing of of not sticking out, not showing off too much, and just getting on with it? I mean, a bit of both. Uh, definitely the not showing off thing uh, went very deep with me. Yeah. I was, again, I suspect a lot of people my age from a similar background would remember that feeling. You know, that not showing off, drawing attention to yourself was 
you know, a very big thing and to be <laughs> aimed for. And I do think that sort of stuck with me. I, I never quite bought into the notion that, you know, that it was a good thing to massively draw attention to yourself. And underplaying things seemed to come naturally. But it was also the spirit of the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy looking back, especially on people's music careers, to, if they've ended up becoming successful, to see it as inevitable from the beginning. But it doesn't seem like it at the time. You know, the success that, for instance, the Marine Girls were having was tiny. It really was tiny. And we're one of those bands who have sort of become bigger in retrospect, you know, long after we split up. You know, now you can tell amazing stories like, oh, well, we were Kurt Cobain's favourite band and stuff like that. And it, so it makes it sound all very big and glamorous. But one of the reasons we were his favourite band was because no one had heard of us. <laughs> so it was a cool thing to be into. Mm -hmm. um, so at the time when I went to university, it, it didn't feel like... You know, I was turning my back on some amazing career. But when you when you went, you did you were keen to sort of turn your back on suburbia and, and kind of get yeah. away, and you didn't you, you didn't go back. But you also say that you and you describe it as a sort of a, a mini breakdown at, at the time, just just when you went to university. Mm. What was behind that when you'd been aching to escape for so long? I mean, I think that's really interesting. You know, for someone who was desperate to get away. Um, when the break when it came when I really did escape and not only did I escape physically but the breach between me and my parents opened up even wider um, they disapproved massively of Ben hilariously because <laughs> that's clearly not going to last <laughs> um, and we did the thing they disapproved of which was um, moving in together as students living together not getting married my parents were conventional enough to really really object to that even as late as you know the early 80s and from that point you know what had been a rift between us became a massive rift and instead of reveling in my newfound freedom and having shaken them off I do think I had a bit of a breakdown at university I didn't really talk to anyone about it because no one did in those days um, I suffered panic attacks without telling anyone and really went through a lot of stuff just very privately, which was the way people did in those days. You know, no one said, oh, you ought to go and talk to someone. Um, maybe this is a mental health issue. But I think, you know, however much you rebel against parents, it's not an easy or happy thing to do. Um, I wasn't, I always talk about myself as being a rebellious teenager, but I wasn't a very happy rebel. I would have been much happier in a family where being into music and buying a guitar was just sort of accepted as okay and fine and not a big deal. Mm -hmm. I kind of rebelled because I had to, because I knew I had to do all this stuff. But I didn't rebel for the sake of it, just because I wanted to. It was just a means to an end. And I honestly would have been a lot happier not having to be so rebellious. And how do you feel about your upbringing in suburbia now? Do you see it as a, a kind of gift in that it gave you a stable no. upbringing? <laughs> no, but it spurred you on, didn't it, to, to yeah, achieve everything you have? Yeah, but, you know, I, I also don't like sentimentalising things afterwards just because they kind of turn out OK. I mean, uh -huh. I read a lot of things now. People talk a lot about boredom and, you know, 
in the sense of looking at what young people have now and saying, oh, well, they're so spoilt by having so much culture on offer, so much freedom, you know, it's going to thwart their creativity. They don't know what it's like to be bored. Um, and I look at my kids and I'm so envious of them, <laughs> honestly. I mean, they're not thwarted at all. They're all really creative. They're all really busy. But they're happy. And they're also, they've got the approval of their parents, which I think is a good thing. I don't think you have to force people to suffer in order to create art. I know I've said that the, the being on the outside was a spur, but it, we, it was only because we had to force ourselves to do it. So I do think there's a danger in romanticizing that being thwarted and implying that, you know, unless you're thwarted, you're not going to create art. Mm. People do create things in terrible circumstances or despite things, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that therefore yeah. you should be grateful for it. I'm, you know, I, in writing the book, I became very forgiving of my parents. Yeah. Um, it ends up being a much more forgiving book than you'd imagine from the actual diary entries. I, I end up making a lot of my peace with them. But there are some things about the way I was brought up that I really don't forgive, that I do think were unkind and unnecessarily harsh and did me harm. Mm. And, you know, I, so I don't want to romanticise it and look back and go, well, it was all fine because I got a good song out of it. No, because uh, there was one moment where, you know, when you, you go back to Brookman's Park, which um, is a thread that runs through the book, you, you know, 30 years after you left, you go back and you walk down the road to your house, and this is the house you were born in, in the front room, uh, in, and, you, you grew, and you grew up in. And I was really interested that you gave it half a sentence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, ve that's very significant then, that you don't sentimentalise no. you know, the place that you grew up and you don't see it through, you know, with the passage of time, you don't see it with rose-tinted spectacles. No, I really don't. Um, I, I mean, I, I actually surprised myself by how how much I didn't mind the place when I went back. I, when I went back on my train mm. journey mm -hmm. the day, I really thought I was going to spend the day being angry and furious and sort of stamping around the streets the way I used to. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, as I walked through the village, I did feel quite at home. I, I had a sense of, um, you know, really strong recollections of what it was like to live there. And, and a place does imprint itself on you. There's part of the place that's in my bones. You know, I talk about having mm -hmm. suburban bones at one point. There's, yeah. there's part of it that I can't shake off. Um, but I'm honestly not sentimental about it, and certainly not about the house. Um, I remember just standing outside it thinking, it just feels so long ago. It feels almost fictional, really. Yeah. Did I really grow up? Was I born in that room there? Yeah. In a moment, um, there'll be an opportunity to ask Tracy your own questions. Um, just while you, you prepare your questions, I just wanted to ask you one more, actually, Tracy, which is about class. And it's really interesting that you say that you grew up with certain ideas about class within the suburbs, these very subtle distinctions among your neighbours, particularly in what's signified by the choice of plants in the garden. And when you, <laughs> when you left and you look back, you started wondering about actually about being called Tracy and what that said about you in terms of class. Can you say more on that? Yeah, I mean, the word class was never used. I never heard my parents refer to anyone's class at all. Um, but the word my mum did use about people was common. Um, anyone um, considered to be below us was common. Now, my parents were both working class. They'd come from working class London. Um, 
my mum would answer the phone going, Potter's Bar, Fair 4619. And they would go, oh, hello, mum. <laughs> it was her mum. Yeah. So, you know, that was the class she was from. Yeah. And yet the move out to the suburbs, as I said, was aspirational. And so the idea was that you moved into a new class. So, you know, one of the favourite things in Brookman's Park was looking down on other people. Um, we lived the wrong side of the village, Uh And there was a wrong and a right side, even in this little village. We lived in the little, tiny, semi-detached houses this side of the shops. And the other side of the shops was a big avenue leading up to the golf club with the detached houses, which was where my mum always wanted to live. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think my parents had a lot of class anxiety, as those kind of people did. You know, they'd left behind or tried to leave behind where they'd come from and ended up in a place where they could never quite be posh enough. And I think that, again, I think that damages people. You know, they lost any sense of belonging or community that they might have had and where they came from and ended up in a place where all their effort was going into keeping up with the posher people up in the avenue. Mm -hmm. And so one of my mum's favourite thing was saying, no, you can't play with so-and-so because she's common and things like that. And then, of course, you know, hilariously, they give me the name that for the rest of my young adult life especially is the marker of young working-class womanhood. Sharon and Tracy are the most common (laughs) names you could give your child. Um, So that just struck me as slightly comic. Um, Yeah. You know when you went back to the the house and you gave your your house half a sentence, the second half of the sentence was you said, and you noticed that the the house next door could do with some doing up. So do you think that was you with your... (laughs) That was me saying it looked a bit common, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> All right, Tracy, let's take some questions from the audience. If you'd just like to put your hands in the air so we can, uh, we can see you, and we will line up a couple of questions at a time. Uh, okay, well, let's start with a question just here. Anybody else like to take the mic? Right, we'll go for that one after that. Can you tell me um, if your purchases from the money you made from your... Uh, newspaper round would indicate the career that you um, had in any way. Sorry, if the purchases I... You, you, the, the, what you spent, your, your, the money you made from your, um, your, your newspaper round. Yes. Um, were you buying lots of records and stuff like that? I did. Well, I mean, some records. I think, you know, again, the interesting thing about those days is we didn't have very many records. Um, what I could earn from my paper round didn't run to buying lots of records. So I still remember... I remember buying mostly singles as well because albums were a bit too expensive. Um, So I had a good um, singles collection um, from that period. And I can remember having about, for a while, about five albums and just playing them to death. And then, obviously, taping other people's albums, although home taping was killing music. Um, (laughs) But... You know, you'd share, if everyone had five albums, you'd share them and tape them. But yeah, so the things I spent my money on were buying records, buying the music papers. You know, the NME every week was essential to find out what was happening. And then tickets to gigs, um, which again, I remember being such a performance, um, you know, writing off with postal orders <laughs> to get <laughs> tickets. There's great diary entries where I say, you know, me and Amanda and Dee have all decided we're going to see the Boomtown Rats and I'm sending off £7.50 to Hemel Hempstead Pavilion. Um, 
<laughs> and I would order records um, from the little small ads in the back of the NME, you know, again, they, and you'd literally cut out the actual little ad and tick the record you want and again send a postal order. So, yeah, the money I did make went on, you know, trying to buy um, music and, you know, nights out involving music, uh, which I guess in the end, yeah, you could say did lead to <laughs> the rest of my life. <laughs> now, there's a question uh, just... Let me see. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, if you could <laughs> put your hands up high, thank you. So, that one there. Thank you. Hello. You said you couldn't write the book while your parents were alive, but it sounds like you've got a sister. How, mm. how's the book, how has she taken the book, and what's your relationship with her? Yeah, I'm very close to my sister, and I did actually let her read it um, before you know, I'd sort of finished. She agrees with all of it. She went, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> um, she had a very similar kind of teenage to me, but then I think actually sort of... She didn't rebel quite as much as a teenager, so she actually sort of came back into the fold a lot younger than I did um, and made her peace with my parents a lot sooner. But certainly our experience of what it was like being a young teenager was very similar. Now, the interesting thing is I also have a brother who's 10 years older than me, and he read it and went, I just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, which, again, I think says a lot about how children within the same families can have a very different experience. And I think the experience of being a girl in that environment was different. I think he was given a lot more freedom and... There was just a sort of higher expectation around him that he would, you know, do things in life and it was more welcomed. I think he he just had sort of, this sounds a terrible word to use, but more respect from my parents in the way that in those days parents did sort of have a respect for their son's identity and autonomy and desire to be a person in the world. Whereas as girls in that era, we were incredibly oppressed and repressed you know we weren't expected to want to do much and everything we did want to do was a problem and my sister identified with that completely and said yeah she completely understood so I thought that was interesting it sort of confirmed what I'd thought about you know that time being very particularly difficult to be a young girl um, um. oh yep yeah, sorry go I'm about halfway through the book and I'm, I'm enjoying it hugely as a fellow Thank child you. of suburbia, um, where for me a big Saturday was going to the Glades in Bromley. Which oh, come <laughs> on. Um, I'm just past the section where you've talked to get, uh, about things you've left out, which was where you'd experienced some bullying, uh, but you hadn't written it in the diary itself. I wonder, was that suppression that you weren't putting things in the diary mirrored in the rest of your life? Were you talking about those tougher times with friends or with others, or was it something you, were just, you weren't sharing with anyone at all? No, I don't think we're sharing with anyone at all. Um, again, I think, you know, back to that concept of being brought up to think that um, you didn't necessarily discuss difficult things. I think that stayed with me for a really long time. Um, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just embarrassment. My mum my had a very strong sense of pride, I think, about not showing your weaknesses. Again, I wonder whether that's part of this thing of always feeling slightly socially anxious and wanting to put, you know, your best face onto the world. Um, you show your best side, you know, you sort of big yourself up as much as you can. 
I think they had this strong sense that there was something shameful about admitting, for instance, to you know, weakness or emotional difficulty. I've talked before about the fact that both my parents lived through the Blitz in London, and yet the way they talked about it to us as children was as though it was something out of an Ealing comedy. They told me ho-ho-ho stories about being blown out of their beds by bombs. And, you know, there was something about that generation that they were brought up to make light of. Really, what I can only imagine must have been quite traumatic experiences. Um, and I do think that fed on down through the generations for a while, you know, so that they'd repressed everything. So they sort of bought into the notion that that was a good thing to do, that the stiff upper lip was clearly the way to be and that it worked. You know, I don't think it did work. My dad was a silent, shadowy figure, I think, because he was quite a troubled man inside. My mum had a bit of a nervous breakdown when she hit her menopause. And again, instead of being offered any help, was put on Valium, the way women were in those days. So, um, yes, that, that degree of repression that I inherited from them, it took me years to shake it off, honestly. I think, you know, the music was a godsend in that it allowed me to let some of it out. Um, but in terms of addressing it properly via therapy and stuff, I didn't do that till I was in my 50s. So, yeah, it, went, it goes pretty deep. Uh, there's a question just here. If you could keep your hand up. Thank you. That's it. Thank you. Hi, Tracy. I'm another Tracy with an E. So... <laughs> It's the only correct. Spirit. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, you've talked a lot about your parents, and um, I'm assuming you've learned a lot of lessons of, to, you know, for the relationship with your own children, um, and ways not to be. But have you learned anything from them that was positive as well? Oh, very much. I think as my parents were brilliant when I was a small child. Um, I think that degree of, you know actually, you know, quite conventional behaviour around children works quite well. I think, you know, kids like routine and stability and, you know, everything just ticking along. And I did replicate quite a lot of that with my kids when they were small. I was, I was quite routine about everything. I, I, I did it, you know, in quite a conventional way. The big difference for me came when they, you know, sort of... Hit, went past the age of 10, 11 and started moving into their teens. And I think then I was absolutely determined not to make the same mistakes. You know, like all parents try not to make the same mistakes that were made. Um, so, you know, again, the times had changed anyway, so it was a more normal approach. But just carrying on talking to them about things and listening to them. You know, the th I've talked about how nothing was talked about when I was young but the, one of the hardest things was I was never listened to you know I was never allowed to express a difficult opinion or say something questioning of their values or ideas and it be listened to it was always shut down and seen as aggressive so I think the biggest lesson I learned about parenting was listening to them and I've tried to carry that on now again it comes back to this thing of not dismissing the younger generation you know not dismissing their experience of the world not which also applies to what i was saying about not sentimentalizing your own not constantly saying things were better when we were younger or we were better we were more creative or you kids you don't know you're born with your internet and your phones you know <laughs> don't do that <laughs> don't do that okay uh yeah there's a question just here thank you 
Hi, I was just curious as to whether your parents' relationship with your children um, enabled them to start opening up and expressing any emotion. I, I think sometimes, you know, I've seen it in my own family where you're, you're actually kind of quite gobsmacked and sometimes irritated by <laughs> uh, the way in which your parent is able to relate to their grandchildren in a way that they haven't been to you. I mean, I didn't really have that experience because being quite old when I had my kids, my parents were quite old already. So they didn't actually see my kids grow up really into being that age. And as I say, you know, when I was a small kid, my parents were fine. So around their grandchildren as small children, they were fine. They didn't live then to see their grandchildren grow up through their teens. Um, and I can only imagine it would have actually been quite fraught, knowing what my teenagers were, who, who were all fantastic, but would all have thrown challenges at my parents that I think would have probably reignited some of the old stuff. But yeah, you're right. You know, if they'd suddenly been all forgiving about them <laughs> doing their stuff, I probably would have found that quite tricky. Well, um, that's all we've... Sorry, are you okay? <laughs> so that's all we've got time for then. Thank you so much for coming and for your questions. Tracy will be signing copies of her book in the signing tent next door, just through there in a few minutes' time on the far side of the tent. So could you please join me in thanking Tracy Thorne. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.